Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We are in uh, November, and uh, when you get into November, that means the holiday season is upon us. Thanksgiving is coming quickly, followed by Christmas, followed by the New Year, and followed by that iconic event of New Year's celebration, the Rose Parade. The Rose Parade is a marketing genius designed by the people of Southern California for all of those who live back east. When in January it is 20 below zero and the snow is 10 feet tall and you're hating life and you're looking out here and people are in shorts watching these floats go by with all of these flowers and marching bands and you go, "Ah, I got to move to Southern California. (laughs) That is why Southern California has such a steady influx of population. If they ever lose the Rose Parade... Sell your house. (laughs) Sell your house. 20 years ago, I worked in Pasadena. Actually, my office was on the corner of Lake and Colorado. I was right on the parade route. And uh, one of the things that uh, always stood out to me was the day after the parade. You you go there the day after the parade, and it uh, it is a different place. The crowds are all gone. City's a little kind of quiet. The uh, streets are bare and empty, except for the gutters, which are absolutely filled with trash left behind after the parade. The music stops, everyone goes home, and it's not much left. And that kind of reminds me, actually, of a Monday of Jesus' Passion Week. Sunday, as it were, was a big parade. The, uh, the crowds turned out, we talked about that last week, the crowds turned out in force to welcome the Messiah into the city of David. Their understanding of him, his person, and his work was very, very flawed, very defective to be sure, but it was, uh, it was a, an amazing day of celebration. But now, beginning on Monday, the hardness of their hearts is going to begin to come to light. And it's going to grow and become increasingly more apparent that they have absolutely no interest in the Savior, the Son of God. Let me pray as we begin. Father, we take up this morning... From this text in Matthew 21, the events of Monday, as you have recorded them for us. Our Father, it was a long, long time ago, and we are so far removed from it all. There are cultural barriers, there are historical barriers. Our Father, I pray for your Spirit's enablement this morning to be able to break down those barriers. O Lord, may we see May we hear, may we feel, may we taste, may we touch the events of that day. Help us, our Father, to understand the hardness of the human heart. That in the face of such an overwhelming display of your glory, turn away. O Lord, may your spirit work to apply his word in our hearts today. 
as we do some self-evaluation. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're looking this morning at the text here from Matthew 21. We'll be looking at verses 12 and 13, and then verses 18 through 22. And I want to do it this morning, uh, looking here at two events, two events that are, that are essential for us to understand why Israel rejected their Messiah and thus brought upon themselves such severe judgment. The two events are the cursing and the cleansing, the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. Now, Matthew, in his gospel, rearranges these events a little and compresses his account of these events a little bit in order to to, um, carry out his purpose in his narrative. So I want to look at them with you this morning. I've kind of made my mind up as we go through the events of the Passion Week. We are certainly expositing Matthew's gospel, to be sure, and that is where we will always be located But I want to bring to bear the other gospel accounts along the way to to present a little bit fuller picture, I think, to help us to to really sense what was going on at that time. It was a very, very, very crucial time. So I'm not going to flip you around in the Bible a lot, but I will make reference to the other parallel accounts, uh, most particularly in Mark's gospel this morning, that uh, in, in the case of Mark's gospel, he has the events uh, arranged more chronologically than Matthew does. And so actually, we're going to be looking at first verses 18 through 22 because it occurs first chronologically, and then we will pick up the account of verses 12 and 13. So we'll look at 18 to 22, then we'll look at 12 and 13. So beginning here with verses 18 through 22, they occur on Monday morning, Uh, Actually, Mark tells us in his gospel, and and the references will all be to Mark chapter 11, because that's where the account uh, occurs. In Mark's gospel, he makes it very clear to us that actually the events that Matthew compresses here in verses 18 through 22 occurred on two days. So they occurred Monday morning, Tuesday morning. The cursing of the fig tree occurred on Monday morning early. We'll talk about this. And the, the realization of the cursing and the lesson to be drawn from the cursing actually occurs on Tuesday morning early. Matthew just puts them together in one account. So just knowing that they occur on two separate days. So let's pick it up here in verse 18. The first event, the first event of that day is the cursing of the fig tree. Monday morning. It happens on Monday morning. You may want to, uh, just a a side note here, you may want to have a pencil, uh, just a suggestion. It was helpful for me a long, long time ago to have a pencil and to just start to pencil into the margin of my Bible uh, the days of the week uh, next to these events. It's just a suggestion for you. You take or leave, but it's helpful for me later to come back as I read these to be able to sort some of this stuff out in its chronology. So anyways, if you were to do that, next to verse 18, you'd write Monday early. Okay, early Monday morning. Matthew says, now in the morning, in the morning when he was returning to the city, he, that is Jesus, became hungry. Now Jesus has spent the night in Bethany. We talked about this more than one time. He will leave the city at the end of each day and he will return back up the Mount of Olives 
up over the crest to the, to the small town of Bethany, there to the home of Lazarus, where he will reside at night. And the reason he will do that is because of the ancient code of hospitality that made it uh, essential, imperative, a requirement for Lazarus to protect those under his roof. And so Jesus finds refuge there in the home of Lazarus. He is safe, as it were, uh, even though he is, uh, he is at the gates of the enemy citadel. So, again, Sunday night, after looking around, coming in in the triumphal entry, later in the day, Mark tells us, he looks around the temple, and he sort of scopes the place out, he cases the place, and then he leaves, and he returns to Bethany. Now we're at Monday morning, and he is returning early back into the city. We're told here that he was hungry. He became hungry. Interesting, I think, That it says Jesus is hungry. It doesn't say they are hungry. And uh, why was Jesus hungry? Well, we can't be sure. But certainly, in my mind, one good possibility is he has spent the evening praying. It would be his habit to do such things, particularly in light of what he is going to be going through over these next days. And in particular this case Monday morning he knows what is about to happen Monday morning and so for my money it would be very logical to see him spending time that night in prayer seeking the strength of the father through the indwelling spirit to give him the spiritual strength energy and power to go and to face his enemies so he There on Monday morning, he is hungry. They are walking along the Jericho Road back down towards the gates of the city of Jerusalem. And as they are going along here, it says that uh, he spied a fig tree all by itself along the side of the road. Verse 19, seeing a lone fig tree by the side of the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. Now this fig tree stood out. And notice it says he spied a lone fig tree. There was something about the fig tree that caused it to stand out, to stand out to him. And uh, the reason the fig tree would stand out to him is because of the time of year. This is April, and, uh, and he notices on this fig tree that it is in full leaf. It is in full leaf meaning that the other fig trees at this time of year are not in full leaf. And so this tree stands out because it is in full leaf. Now why, we can't be sure, but I think the most likely reasons are that this tree has benefited from its particular location. That is, it's in a good kind of soil in which there is plenty of nutrient for it and and likely exposed to the sun in such a way that it is ahead of the rest of the fig trees of that particular area. It is in a favored position relative to the other fig trees at this time of year. It stands out. It stands out. The tree looks promising. It looks promising. And so Jesus comes to it says he came to it and he is looking for figs. He is looking for something for breakfast. Now Mark uh, throws us a curveball in Mark chapter 11 and verse 13 where he's narrating the same account. And he inserts for us and says it's not the season for figs. And then you go, uh, 
It's in full leaf. Jesus comes to it. He is obviously expecting to find figs on the tree. And yet Mark says it is not the season for figs. And so you are left with a dilemma. You are left at a dilemma. Well, which is it? Why would Jesus go to a fig tree looking for figs when it's not the right time of year for figs? And then why, secondarily, I suppose, why would he curse the tree for not having figs if it's not the time of year to have figs? You can sort of sense the tension, I suppose. So the answer to this is we need to know something about fig trees, don't you think? Little information on fig trees would be helpful to sort this out. And so, here we go. We will unsort the mystery of fig trees. Okay? And it's important. It is important. I don't do this just because it's interesting, although I believe it is. Uh, I do this because it is essential to sort this, this whole thing out. So, here you go. Fig trees in Israel, wild fig trees in Israel, produce several crops throughout the year. Actually, they produce three crops. The first crop is in June. It's called the spring crop. Uh, It is called, biblically, the first ripe figs. It is a very small crop of figs, and they are particularly sweet at that time of year, but it is called the first ripe figs. So that's the first crop, and it normally comes out in June. The main crop of figs are called summer figs, and they ripen in the August-September time frame. There is a third crop of figs in a, in a wild tree, and they are called winter figs. They are smaller, and uh, they uh, tend to ripen around November, and they also will stay on a tree often, Uh, right through to the spring until the spring figs come. So there are these three different crops of figs. We need to know that. Beyond that, what we need to know is that the fig leaves, um, when they appear, uh, they appear right about the same time or slightly after the uh, spring fruit or the first ripe figs. So when we see a tree with leaves on it, we could conclude that there should be figs upon it. There should be figs upon this tree. So here we are in April, early April. There is foliage all over the tree. The foliage means there ought to be figs upon the tree. Either residual winter figs or an early crop of first ripe figs. That haven't reached their full maturity, their full sweetness, but they are nonetheless edible. So it is not technically the season of figs, but this tree, by virtue of its location and and the, the benefits of its location, with its foliage out, is advertising to the world, come here for figs. Come get your figs. Yet when Jesus searches the tree... He doesn't find any figs. All he finds is leaves. Verse 19, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. No winter figs, no early first ripe figs. And he said to it, no longer shall there be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Now, 
Is Jesus just grumpy? Didn't get his breakfast? Feeling a little irritable in the morning. Didn't get your breakfast, I see, right? Is that what's going on? Is that what we got here? Did he punish this tree unjustly? I mean, after all, it's not the season for figs. Well, the answer is no, he's not grumpy. And no, he didn't punish a tree unjustly. Let's just start with that. A tree is an inanimate object. One cannot punish an inanimate object, okay? End of that. All right, trees are not punished any more than a rock can be punished. So it's not about punishing a tree. This is an enacted parable. This is an enacted parable. Jesus' parabolic ministry, the, the ministry of parables, where he would speak truth, right, that was revealed to those who were his and concealed from his enemies. This was a parable in action. It was a parable in action. And this is the parable. It portrays the condition of the nation of Israel. It portrays the condition of the nation of Israel. And in particular that the curse is going to come on that generation. That's what this is all about. That's what this is all about. This generation had flocked out to hear John the Baptist. Do you remember that? They came from everywhere to hear John the Baptist. There was an outward display of spiritual passion. And John said to them in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, it's recorded for us there, that they are to bring forth, what? In keeping with repentance? Bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And yet here we are, And the nation has no fruit. The nation has no fruit. They have failed to bring forth the fruit. They are just like that fig tree. Outwardly promising, inwardly sterile. Outwardly promising, inwardly sterile. They advertise to the world just the day before that they were ready to receive the king. And yet the reality is their heart is so hard, so hard, there is nothing there. Jesus curses the tree. No longer, verse 19, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And immediately the tree withers. Immediately the tree withers. Now, Mark's gospel tells us that it withered from the roots up. It withered from the roots up. Mark chapter 11 and verse 20 gives us that little additional detail. Listen, trees don't die from the roots up. They die from the branches down. When a tree withers, it withers from the branches toward the roots. Life retracts and retreats. This is a supernatural killing of this tree. And it is done immediately, instantaneously, as the Son of Man sovereignly pronounces judgment upon this sterile tree. Now, Mark tells us that it's Tuesday morning before the disciples recognize that. 
They're returning to the city, Mark chapter 11, verse 21. They're returning to the city early Tuesday morning, and Peter points the tree out to Jesus. He says, Master, look, the tree you cursed, it is withered. Well, the root's up. Well, that's not how trees die. So there's an amazing lesson here, an amazing lesson of the sovereign power of God, the authority of God. And it is designed to teach the disciples a lesson. But they missed it. That shouldn't surprise us. They missed it. Verse 20. If you were penciling in your margin, you'd write here next to verse 20, Tuesday. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? They missed the lesson. The reason I say they missed the lesson is because their amazement is about how quickly the tree died. Their amazement is how quickly the tree died. In fact, one writer says the amazement at how rapidly the tree withered overrides their perception of why it withered and what it signifies. They did not perceive the why and the what of this event. They were caught up in the amazement of, wow, you cursed the tree and it's dead. Verse 21, and Jesus answered and said to them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Some think the mountain, by the way, that he is referring to is the Mount of Olivet, which they are descending And from the crest of the Mount of Olivet, you can see Jerusalem to one side, the Dead Sea to the other. And so perhaps he is making that reference there. But the point of it is that that, that a statement about moving a mountain or a mountain being cast into the sea is a metaphor to describe that which is humanly impossible. There's a metaphor to describe that which is humanly impossible. Now, Jesus responds to them here. Notice the the solemnity of his response, verse 21. Truly, I say to you, pay attention here. This is important for you to learn. And he's giving them, he's going to give them right here, right now, a lesson on messianic authority. He's giving them a lesson on messianic authority. And what the lesson is, is that the power comes from a prayerful dependence upon the Father. The power comes from a prayerful dependence upon the Father. That's the lesson here. That's the lesson that he wants them to take from this. He's going to leave them soon, very soon. And he's going to leave them as his authorized representatives, and he is going to charge them with the impossible. The impossible. There are are going to be mountains before them that must be moved, that must be cast into the sea. That which is humanly impossible. And they need to recognize that the power to do this comes from a prayerful dependence upon the Father as his representatives. Let me illustrate for you uh, a mountain moved shortly thereafter. It occurs in Acts chapter 5. I won't turn you there. Just think with me on this. Early in the church, Peter moves a mountain when he pronounces judgment upon Ananias and Sapphira. Do you remember that? 
and they are instantly slain for their wickedness in the church. Beloved, it is, that is humanly impossible. One cannot slay another person with a word. And yet Peter calls down a curse upon them, pronounces judgment upon them, and they are slain. They are slain. They, have, they as the representatives of the Messiah, have, have been granted messianic authority and power. And it comes to them by their prayerful dependence upon the Father. That's the first event, the cursing of the fig tree. Outwardly promising, inwardly sterile. Second event. Second event is the cleansing of the temple. Second event is the cleansing of the temple, verses 12 and 13. Now, a little background here will help us. A little background. The public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ has a pair of bookends, one on each end of this ministry, and they are important bookends. They are bookends that that mark his official claim to be Israel's Messiah. And the bookends are two events, and they are the same event done twice. It is the cleansing of the temple. It is the cleansing of the temple. Those events are the two bookends. They mark out his, his public claim to be the Messiah of Israel. The first cleansing is recorded for us in John chapter 2. It is a warning to the nation that Messiah is in their midst. The second bookend that that, that terminates, as it were, his, his public ministry to the nation is the event recorded for us here, the second cleansing of the temple. And the message there is judgment. The first is warning. The second is judgment. And they mark out Messiah. They mark out Messiah. So this is Monday morning. After, after cursing the fig tree early in the morning, they go into the temple, and Jesus here will cleanse the temple. He will cleanse the temple. As the king, he has authority over the nation, including its most holy place, the temple of God. And so he is going to cleanse it. He's going to assert his sovereign control over the temple and its precincts. And again, Mark will tell us in Mark chapter 11 and verse 16 that he will do this for a period of two days. So for a period of two days, Monday and Tuesday, Jesus will assert sovereign authority and control over the temple mount. Nothing will happen that he does not permit to happen. So for two days, this goes on. During this two-day period of time, all of the officials of Judaism, all of the leadership of Judaism will repeatedly come and challenge him and seek to discredit him and to either get him arrested by the Romans or or pry loose his popular appeal, and he will best them all in public debate until he silences them. So he possesses the Temple Mount, he silences his enemies. Now a question for you. Perhaps you've thought of this. Why didn't they just arrest him? Why didn't they just arrest him? You know, kind of drag him off. one guy, you know. Why didn't they do that? Why didn't they do it after the first temple cleansing? Certainly, why don't they do it here? Why don't they do it now? Why don't they just drag this troublemaker away? They can't. They can't. And this is, this is uh, I think this is just brilliant. And so, let me just kind of lay this out for you. 
At this time, the nation of Israel is under the, the leadership and control of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, that is the official leadership body of the nation of Israel. The Sanhedrin are made up primarily of two warring factions, Sadducees and Pharisees. The Sadducees are more in number on the Sanhedrin at this time, and they have the greater influence. The Sadducees' realm and domain is the city of Jerusalem and primarily the Temple Mount. The Pharisees are popular with the people. Sadducees are not popular with the people. The Pharisees are popular with the people, generally speaking. And the Pharisees' territory and domain and authority and power structure lies out in the countries side through the synagogue system. So you have the Sadducees that control the temple, you have the Pharisees that control the synagogues, and they hate each other's guts. Okay? They can't stand each other. The Sadducees are the priestly class, and the Pharisees are the teachers of the people. And Jesus, this is brilliant, this is where I think it's brilliant, Jesus, for three years, skillfully plays them off against each other. He exploits their, their, their hatred of one another in such a way that he is able to move freely about the countryside, making claim to be Messiah, preaching, doing miracles, presenting the kingdom to the nation, and yet staying in, in a one step ahead of the authorities in that whole process. And he does it by playing off the structural hostilities against or between the two groups. So in the first temple cleansing... He offends who? The Sadducees. He offends the Sadducees. This is their domain. He does it to the delight of the Pharisees. Go get them. Young, upstart, prophet, come in here, right? Disrupt the place. Knock the tables over. We love it. We love it. And so the Pharisees are shielding him at that time. Then he he leaves Jerusalem, he goes north into Galilee, he conducts his 18-month public ministry in Galilee, and he's all over Galilee preaching and teaching in the synagogues. Guess what? The Pharisees, they're not so big on that. Because he's continually pointing out their hypocrisy. And so, gradually, over time, the, the, the Pharisees' hatred of him overwhelms their, their uh, happiness that he has poked his finger in the eye of their enemies, the Sadducees. Now he is making his final trip down to the city of Jerusalem. He's coming back in, final assault. Final assault on the Sadducees. So he comes back into the city to make his final assault upon the Sadducees at the place where he will tweak them the most, which is in their temple, And now it will galvanize the mutual hatred of the Sadducees that has been smoldering, the Pharisees that it's in open flame. They will come together and they will unite in their mutual hatred of Jesus. And they'll have him on a cross. They'll have him on a cross. Listen. Remember when Jesus says to his disciples in Mark chapter 10 and verse 16, You are to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. This is a perfect illustration of what he is talking about. A perfect illustration. By the way, the Apostle Paul uh, learned these lessons well. You read the book of Acts as he goes about his ministry, right? He is really good at sort of moving in and out and around and exploiting political differences and hostilities and so forth in order to keep himself alive and to continue to preach until the Lord's appointed time for him to die. 
All right. We need to talk about the temple. Let's talk about the temple. So the temple that Jesus enters here, let me just, a couple things. I've got a picture I'm going to show you in a minute. But the, but the temple he enters here, you just need to know some of this. It is, it is commonly called the second temple. All right, it's called the second temple. If you read any, any of the literature, it's referred to as the second temple. We are in the second temple. Okay? This second temple is also biblically known as Zerubbabel's temple. This is the temple that was, that was rebuilt by the re- exiles returning from the Babylonian captivity in 536. It took about 20 years to build it. It's recorded for us in Ezra. And they constructed a temple that was nowhere near the size and glory and grandeur of Solomon's temple, the first temple, but it is the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple. Now, about 500 years later, after Zerubbabel's temple was constructed, Herod the Great came along, and in order to ingratiate himself with his subjects who hated his guts, plus in order to, to boast to the world about his prowess, as both an architect and a king, he had the temple area completely redesigned and completely remodeled. And I've got that picture for you. Okay, so here's what Herod did about 500 years later. And this process, by the way, uh, took about, uh, I can't remember now. It it took, uh, well, he'd been working on it 46 years at the time Jesus cleansed it the first time. It was a long building project. I can't do the math right off the top of my head to tell you how long, but I think it was close to 70 years he's building the thing. 60 years. Anyway, here's what Herod did. Herod had a plaza built. Okay, there's a mount. Uh, the city of Jerusalem is hilly with valleys. He had a plaza built that, that went across the top of, a, of an entire ridgeline where Solomon's temple was located. This plaza is 35 acres 35 acres. Just as a point of reference, this entire church property, that's to the back of the parking lot from the street, is five acres. Seven times the size of this property, okay? So that gives you an idea of what we're talking about here. What he did is he had these massive stone retaining walls built on either side of the mountain, of the hill, and then using arches underneath to support it, he had an entire plaza built. And there's, a, there's an illustration of it there, Okay? He built his temple around Zerubbabel's temple, and then he had Zerubbabel's temple disassembled stone by stone. So that's how it technically remains the second temple, Herod's temple. Now, the common people would enter to, to get to this temple. You see in the picture, there's staircases in the front of the picture. That's the southern side of the temple mount. So you'd go up these stairs, you go through these tunnels, these dark tunnels, and you would emerge up onto the temple mount platform from these underground tunnels, passageways, dimly lit passageways, intentionally dimly lit passageways. Because when you came up onto the, onto the Temple Mount, there is Herod's temple, and it is, it is covered in gold and white stone. And the sun would reflect off of, off of that temple, and as you came out of the dark uh, tunnels, your eye, the pupils of your eyes would be greatly enlarged, right? And then you step into the sunlight... Of, 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 of Jerusalem that is very, very bright, and it hits that temple, and it, and it bounces back and hits your eyes. And what they report is that people would literally be knocked off their feet by the brightness of the temple when it hit them. It was all designed that way. It was truly one of the wonders of the ancient world. It is an architectural marvel. The rabbis used to say, if you have not seen Herod's temple, you have not seen a beautiful building. 
It was spectacular. Now, the Old Testament law uh, did not require the temple construction the way it is here, the way Herod constructed it, which was in a series of courts, a series of courtyards that, that smaller and smaller numbers of people could enter into. So the far expanses, as you see there, the, the, the large parts of the platform were set aside for the Gentiles. It's called the court of the Gentiles. There was a low wall surrounding the court of the Gentiles with, with signs periodically on the wall that says, if you pass this place, you do so under pain of death. So the Gentiles were held back. Next inside, actually the temple area, when you would enter into the walls of the temple area, would be another court, smaller court, called the court of the women. That's as far as the women could come. Then you would go up some stairs through some double doors. You would come into an even smaller area, and this was the court of the men. It was here that the sacrifices would be slain. Following that, as you continue to move closer to God, as it were, you would go through another set of doors, and you would enter into what is called the holy place. The holy place. There would be the, the uh, table of showbread and, and those kinds of things. And then the final, of course, would be the holy of holies into which only the high priest could go and but once a year. So you have this restricted access where you have the largest number on the outside and then it narrows as one comes close to God. Verse 12, Matthew 21. You got all of that background, right? Can you see it? Can you see the place? I wish you could. I wish you could. I understand there's a trip going there, by the way, next year in October. Save your money. Save your money and go. It'll change the way you read the Bible. All right, here we go. Jesus entered the temple. He entered the temple. And he drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. He entered the temple. Now listen, the Mosaic Law didn't, didn't specify exactly how the temple was to be constructed architecturally, and so there was license in that. But the Old Testament was very specific with regard to the sacrificial system. What was supposed to be brought, when it was supposed to be brought, and of what quality the sacrificial animal had to be. And in particular, they had to be unblemished. If one were poor, there was, a, there, was a, there was a caveat for the poor, and that is their sacrificial animals uh, typically could be a dove instead of the more expensive animals. Now, it's impractical as a pilgrim coming for the Passover feast, whether you're coming from Galilee in the north or whether you're streaming in from the remotest part of the empires to celebrate this mandatory feast, it's kind of impractical to bring your goat with you. To bring your lamb with you, to throw it over your shoulder and carry it for, you know, 150 miles. You could do it, but when it gets there, it has to be inspected by the priests. The priests inspect it, and it has to pass their inspection. It has to be certified as unblemished to be utilized in the sacrifice. So it's, it's just more expedient, and it's cheaper to wait until you get to Jerusalem and then buy your sacrificial animal. You have all the lambs being raised on the hills in preparation of the sacrifice. That's another message for Christmas. Beyond that, because the nation of Israel 
had been overrun repeatedly through its history by various world empires that was in circulation at that time, all kinds of competing coinage. All right? The coins in those days were, were, were metal coins. They were, they were either copper or they were, or they were silver. Or in some cases, they were even lead or they were, of course, gold. And so uh, there, were, there were Persian coins, there were Tyrian coins, there were Egyptian coins, there were Grecian, uh, Grecian coins, there were Roman coins. All kinds of coins floating around. This is in the days before what we call fiat money. That's paper money. That's where you get a piece of paper and somebody tells you it's worth something. Okay, that's what your wallet is full of, fiat money. Another sermon for another time. Okay? This was real money with real value. And it, but it needs to be exchanged. It needs to be exchanged because, because the, the temple only took a certain kind of coin. And so you're coming in from all over the empire, the foreign pilgrims coming in. You know, you have your pockets full of whatever you got. And so it, it, in order to pay the temple tax, it needs to be exchanged. In order to purchase the things you need for the Passover feast, you need to get your money changed. In order to, to purchase the various sacrificial items, the oil, the wine, the salt... It needs to be changed. If you want to make a free will offering, a love offering to God, it needs to be exchanged into the proper currency. And if you have ever traveled, you understand what it is to exchange money. You get ripped off. Okay? You get ripped off. And that's exactly what's going on here. Now, the whole uh, court of the Gentiles was set up for this activity. There would be tables with money changers sitting there, and they would be exchanging, you know, money. And so you can kind of get a, a feel for what it would be like. You know, it would be a very noisy place. It would be kind of a chaotic uh, sort of place, surrounded by tables of money changers. And as one writer says, the weighing of the coins, deductions for loss of weight, arguing, disputing, bargaining. If you've ever been to, you know, to kind of a flea market, you kind of get an idea uh, if you amp it up. Okay. It is a noisy, chaotic, crazy place with all of this change going on. Add to that all of the sounds of the animals kept in cages that can sense the the death that is close at hand. They can smell it and they fear it and they are not happy to be there. So you got this entire operation going on, selling sacrificial animals, exchanging money, providing supplies for the feasts, and it's all set up here in the court of the Gentiles. And it is operated as a franchise system under the oversight of the family of the high priest, whose name was Annas. In fact, the rabbis called this the bazaars of Annas. And that was not a compliment. Okay? Annas was the, is that wicked high priest that appears in the pages of the New Testament. He and his family sold franchises to the money changers and to the, to the sacrificial sellers. You, you know, if you brought in, hey, I'll just bring my own lamb. You bring it in, you show it to his priest. You know, gee, it's got a dent in it. You can't, uh, you know, I can't give you a full price for this car. So you would have to do business with them and they would gouge you. And you knew you were being gouged. Okay? You knew you were being gouged. So it's under his control, this, this entire corrupt system, all those exorbitant fees are being charged. You can, you know, you just can sense it. People come in and, and, they, and they, you know, you put your money on the scale, right? And, and the guy says, you know, this is not pure copper here. You know, you're, I'm only going to give you, you know, 80 cents on the dollar kind of thing. And you're, what? You know, and so it's, it's going on. It's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. 
And Jesus walks in that morning. He walks into that. And he just turns the whole thing over. He just turns the whole thing. He flips it all on its head. I mean, you've, you've got you've to see an enraged prophet who moves from table to table. And be careful. I, I don't know if I'm strong enough to do this or not, but you know, over it goes. Coins flying everywhere. Kicking over the baskets of the sacrificial animals. Moving from stall to stall. Fire in his eyes. Mark tells us in Mark 11, verse 16, he also forbid people to use the temple area as a cut-through. Listen, the, the temple mount dominates the city. The old city's not that big, about a mile. And so in order to get from one gate to another, it was much more expedient to, to come in through and cut through the temple mount and back out again rather than walk around that thing. And Jesus says, no way. You're not cutting through here. Okay? You can't come in that door and, and go out that door. You, you go around. You go around. And so for two days, two days, he will forbid none of this to happen. None of it. Why? Why? Verse 13. And he said to them, it is written. It is written. That is, the authority for this lies in the word of God. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Now he is, he is combining two citations here. There is a, there is a reference to, to Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7, and there is also a, a reference to Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11, and, and he combines those. And listen, when he, when he s- cites a portion of those chapters, he's pulling the whole chapter in. He's pulling the whole chapter in. Isaiah chapter 56 speaks of a time in the future, looking forward, when the, the Messiah's kingdom will be there, And the temple will be a house of prayer for all the nations of the world. They will come to pray and to worship at the feet of the King of Israel, the Messiah of God. Isaiah chapter 56. In fact, Mark makes it very clear. Mark chapter 11, verse 17, where he includes the quote, My house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. For the nations. For the Gentiles. And here's the court of the Gentiles filled with all of this thievery, right? Instead of it being a house of prayer for the Gentiles, it had become a raucous bazaar. By the way, I think it's instructive in John chapter 12 that right after Jesus cleansed the temple here on Monday, the thing that John records for us is Greeks come and want to see Messiah. Remember that? The Gentiles want to come and talk to Jesus. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 7 speaks there about judgment and and a judgment that is going to come upon the nation of Israel. 600 years earlier, Jeremiah writes this, and it's going to come across the nation because the nation is acting wickedly, yet they are assuming because they have Solomon's temple that everything is fine. That they can act however they want as long as the temple is there, as long as they come into the temple, as long as they um, sacrifice in the temple according to the regulations, that everything's fine. The temple of God, the temple of God, the temple of God. It's repeated there in Jeremiah 
chapter 7. And God, speaking through Jeremiah to the nation, says no. He warns them. He says, unless you turn from your wickedness, that Solomon's temple is going to suffer the same fate as Shiloh. Now, Shiloh was the place where the Ark of the Covenant came when they first came into the land. And it was there under the stewardship of Eli, the fat high priest, and his two wretched sons, do you remember? Where they took it into battle against the Philistines, and the sons were killed, and the Ark was captured. Now, the text doesn't say it specifically there, but but historians are are quite clear on this. The Philistines then later came and destroyed Shiloh. Destroyed Shiloh. It was wiped out. And it's referred to here in Jeremiah 7 as a place that stands memorial to the judgment of God upon his people because of their wickedness. Meaning your temple, in that case your tabernacle, is not going to protect you from the wrath of God because of your wickedness. Jesus is saying here in Matthew 21 and verse 13, you have turned what was designed to be a draw for the nations to come and see the glory of God and, and, and his people living in close fellowship with him. You have turned this thing into a bazaar, into a robber's den. You have perverted it and you are trusting in this external temple and its sacrificial system that somehow that makes it all right and you are just like your ancestors. You are just like that prior generation. Your worship is meaningless. It is a ritual. It is a salve for your conscience. It is a cover for your wicked and unbelieving hearts. You love neither God nor man made in his image. On Tuesday afternoon, he's going to tell them, this entire place is going to be dismantled. Not one stone will be left on another. Beloved, you know what? It is easy to read this and to say, I can't believe they were that way. I cannot believe the hardness of their heart. All the spiritual privilege the nation had, and they're like that fig tree. How could they possibly think that that religious duties, God-prescribed religious duties, is somehow sufficient to cover the wickedness of their hearts? How could they believe that? When the question we should ask ourselves is, is how could we believe that? How could we believe such a thing? Listen, we need to, we need to let this one sink in. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says, test yourself. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? How do we apply these events? I think God would have us apply them in a, in a, in a time of self-evaluation. Self-evaluation. Listen. There is a danger of outer passion and inner sterility regarding God. Outer passion, inner sterility. There is a danger of being like a fig tree. Like a fig tree, right? 
We look alive spiritually. We participate in the, in the life of the church. But there's no fruit in our lives. There's no fruit in our lives. There's, there's no changed life going on. We need to ask ourselves a question. You need to ask yourself a question. Do I really believe? That's not a question one should ask once in a lifetime. That's a question that someone should ask with some regularity. Do I really believe? Do I really believe? In what way do I see the Spirit of God at work in my life? Or am I a lot of green leaves and barren branches? The danger of outer passion and inner sterility. It's the second danger here. It is the danger of a, the blasphemy of corrupt worship. The blasphemy of corrupt worship. Listen, they had it down to the nth degree. They had it down to the nth degree. But it was a blasphemous worship. A fruitless life is the product of corrupt worship. Do you understand that? A fruitless life is the product of, of corrupt worship. Listen, it is, it is an inviolable spiritual law. We will become like that which we worship. Either God or man. You will become like what you worship. Going through the motions is not worship. Singing the songs is not worship. Regardless of how much passion you bring to it. In fact, they're going to be a cover for a, for a wicked heart. It can be a way to deceive ourselves into thinking that we're children of God when we're not. Or if we are children of God, it can be a way to cover a life of disobedience, right? Sunday, and then Monday through Saturday. Question. Does it thrill your heart to be here on Sunday morning? Does it thrill your heart to be here? Why do you come? What are you here for? What is it you're after? It's being among the people of God. Hearing the word preached. Reading the word. Prayer. Giving. All the aspects of corporate worship. Communion. Baptism. All of these aspects. Do they thrill your heart? Is there, is there a, rather, a place you'd rather be? I hope not. 
I hope you see this time, this place, the gathering of God's people at this hour as a highlight of your week. The chance to come together and to encourage and exhort and admonish one another in the Word of God. To be in the presence of the Spirit of God as He inhabits His people. To enter into what Jesus calls in John 4, worship in spirit and truth. For such God is seeking to be his worshipers. I pray that's true. This section of, uh, of Matthew's gospel right here is a, is a really good time to do some self-diagnostic. May the Spirit help us. Father, serious stuff for a serious day. We read about what happened that day. It is, it is almost beyond our ability to conceive of. The righteous anger of the Messiah as he cleansed his temple. As he cursed a tree. Oh God, we know you do not change. We, your people, are susceptible to the same thing, to, to speak forth your praises on our lips but have hearts far from you. Oh God, deliver us. May you, may you use your word. May your spirit use his word even now. Convict us where we need to be convicted, O oh Lord. Grant us repentance. Encourage us, exhort us, draw us back to the good news of the gospel that Jesus has died for these sins. We ask it in his name. Amen. Beloved, I have kept you very long and I apologize for that. But go in peace.